isn't enough, a podcast created by two women of color who think that it's time to move beyond collectively checking the boxes when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm Jessica Lee, and I'm here with Fiona Oliphant, and we are the founders of Healing Equity United. Hey, Jess. Hey, how's it going? It's going really, really well. I'm excited about the work we were doing today. And um, it led to today's topic of conversation. Which is? What's allyship? What's co-conspiratorship? Yeah, I think that's a really timely topic, especially given what's going on right now with COVID and and all the different things that are coming up in terms of like looking at systems of of inequality. And so what is it like to be um, living in in this age of inequity, especially during the pandemic? It's really challenging. It's really challenging because systems of oppression, I feel like, have not been so present as they are today, right? So in the age of COVID, we see extremely disparate health outcomes for people of color than their white counterparts. Um, That's due to significant underlying health issues. That's due to cramped living conditions or multi-generations, multiple generations living in a household. That's due to folks who are lower income having to use mass transportation and increasing their exposure that way. Uh, another inequity that is so evident to me right now, the rise of hate crimes and bigotry against Asian folks. I mean, it's coming from politicians, from the president on down, who are spurring this nasty language about the Kung flu and the Chinese virus and things like that. And then finally... When we talk about essential workers, we haven't mentioned essential workers in this vein prior to now, but the COVID essential workers are the low-income folks who tend to be of color, who are providing services, and they are being compelled to go out there and risk their lives every day. They're not getting significant amounts of pay. They're not getting the proper protections that they need to keep themselves safe. And we are perpetuating this, you know, you all folks of color have to bend over backwards and put yourselves into pretzels and risk your lives to serve us, the mainstream. And it's just this whole time has been really, really just tiring on the soul and the spirit and you know, intellectually, when you when you want to deconstruct oppression, it's really hard. Yes, I can. De- I definitely hear that. And, and so, you know, why isn't being woke enough? I mean, for decades, we've been <laughs> talking about like how we need to be allies and and we need to do this work. And 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 I kind of feel like you know we we really like have just accepted that allyship is wearing a pin 
right? Or posting something on Facebook for your friends or just putting an article out there. And so why do we say that being woke isn't enough? Look, I'm not going to throw shade at allyship. If there are allies out there who want to stand in solidarity with marginalized folks, sure, have at it. But I think where I would like to see some additional movement is going from that sort of performative allyship to really assuming risk with the marginalized groups or the targeted groups or the oppressed groups, um, working in solidarity with those groups, um, being led by those groups, just assuming risk, right? That's, you know, yes, wearing a pin might expose you, I guess, to some community harm if people target you as um, selling out a a certain cause or something like that. But co-conspiratorship and moving beyond being woke means action. It means really challenging a system, an existing system of oppression, disrupting it and really wanting to dismantle it. And, you know, the system loves status quo. So whenever you take those actions, um, there's going to be some pushback. There's going to be some significant pushback. And so from my perspective, being woke isn't enough because I don't need to hear you talk about how woke you are. I need you to stand in solidarity with folks and do something. So what about for you? Don't you think that being a co-conspirator or an accomplice is, is a privilege sometimes? Don't you think that it, it, you know, you have to leverage a type of privilege that you have because we don't always have the ability to just take risks. And, you know, I know I speak for myself, but as someone who has been an an accomplice, a co-conspirator, I also know that I can afford to take more risks because I'm able to leverage certain types of privilege like education and income and things like that, that others might not have. And so, so how do you how do you do that? You know, if you if you are thinking about, you know, feeding your family or if you're worried about losing your job. Yeah, yeah that's hard. It's really hard because I hear you. Um, there are many times that I can stand on my privilege to be a co-conspirator and know that if I risk it and it results in me losing my job, I have a partner who also has an income coming in. So, you know, I think that we all have to strategize for ourselves about how much um, we are able to do, how much risk we are able to assume. But then, more importantly, be strategic about how to leverage your privilege and and how to assume that risk, right? You know, I'm not saying co-conspirator your way out of a job. I'm saying disrupt systems in your job without alienating um, everyone to the extent that you're going to get fired. And if you get fired, then what are your alternative avenues for you know, getting paid, right? To be strategic about those choices. But, you know, when I think back, I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm super brave in being this co-conspirator. When I think back on Rosa Parks, when she sat down, right? 
she was assuming significant risk. And she didn't know where it was going to go. Do I have that kind of bravery? I don't know. But I'm, I'm begging myself to walk in that space. I'm challenging myself to walk in that space. And I'm encouraging others to do it too. Um, what do you think? You know, I think that I think that we all have to assess for ourselves, like what we're willing and able to do. Um, we all have different things that we we have to weigh, whether you know it is our income, whether it is, you know, do we have um, like social capital, right? I mean, some of us have reputations. I know, particularly in my community, there is a lot of stigma around different things, and so people are afraid to speak out about issues like mental health, and so. I mean, I think that we all have to really think about like, what can we actually do at a basic level and then push mm-hmm. ourselves a little bit more to go beyond the very basic. And then every time that we take an action, it's pushing ourselves a little bit more. And so, you know, I'm curious, Fiona, like, can you maybe share an example of, of an act of co-conspiratorship that you've taken um, in your youth? Oh, an act of co-conspiratorship that I've taken in my youth. Well, maybe back when you were marching with Dr. King. <laughs> I am not that old. Thank you. Um, but man, I wish I, I wish that I could have sat at the table to hear those conversations and how for folks assessed risk and talked about it and just, you know, continued on faith that they would eventually create change. Um, let's see, when I was younger, you, you give an example and I'll think about, you know, 70 years ago when I was young. 70 years ago. Yes. So I don't have an example from 70 years ago because I don't even think I was thought of at the time. Um, definitely was not around. And, you know, I think for me, my one of my earliest acts of, of being a co-conspirator was growing up in, in New York City and where, you know, we're taught to be afraid of, of NYPD. Um, people still are, especially immigrant communities, both documented and undocumented. And there was an incident of police brutality in uh, my neighborhood where the NYPD put... Um, uh, an immigrant in a chokehold because the guy was resisting getting uh, a ticket, probably because he couldn't afford to pay for a ticket. And so he ended up getting arrested. And um, I actually ended up uh, talking to his wife and, and, and telling her about some of the civil liberties that are afforded to people living in this country because they were immigrants and they weren't really sure what their rights were and uh, giving her the information for some local organizations that might be able to, to help her. Yeah, so hearing you speak triggers some memories for me as a child. Okay, so I one example was when I was around 10 years old, my family's Jamaican, and so we spent our summers in Jamaica with my mom's family, and I remember distinctly um, there were some hard times financially and politically on the island at that time. And so it was hard to buy meat and beef and sugar and everything was super, super expensive. And um, the folks in the community 
spent a lot of time making um, handmade uh, 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 wooden statues and handmade bracelets and sewing dresses that they would sell in the market to tourists. And I remember distinctly um, when I was about 10, we were in the market and we were trying to buy food and we were, you know, determining how, how much sugar we could afford and how many beans we could afford, the weight of the beans and um, how much meat we could afford. And there were American tourists who were trying to talk down this woman who was selling the stuff that she had made at home. And as a child, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I know how much time she spent making that. And I know what the amount this tourist is trying to talk her down to will buy. And it's not going to be a lot. And she's not going to buy, be able to buy meat with that. And so even in the era of don't speak until spoken to, and a child should be seen, not heard. I remember speaking up and talking to that American tourist and like kind of yelling about how much time that person had spent on that. And, you know, you should give her more money and she deserves it. And what can she buy with that? And you shouldn't tell her that. And um, my mom dragging me away and putting her hand over my mouth. Um so I don't know what happened at the end of that, but I think that's one of my earliest recolle recollections of co-conspiratorship. And so what are some of the things that, you know, you have, you have many children of all ages <laughs> and which is very interesting, you know, and to have children of a variety of different phases of their lives. What are some of the things that you talk to your children about when it comes to co-conspiratorship and what they might be able to do? Because we know that kids are seeing these things in school and we know that they're talking about it, right? I mean, I think that kids today are way more vocal about some of these issues than I know I was or my friends were when I was in school. And so what are some of the things, what are some of the conversations you're having with your children about this? Yeah, so it depends on their age range, right? So for my 22-year-old, I can speak to her and use phrases like allyship and co-conspiratorship um, and the underlying principles that are associated with both. For my 16-year-old, just starting to get the concepts, um, and so it's easier to have conversations. For the 11-year-old, I speak in terms of when you see something is wrong, you speak out and you speak up for the person who's being wronged. If you need help in doing that, you find a trusted adult who will be able to um, back you up. And if you can't find a trusted adult in that space, you, you come to us and, and we'll do that for you. But it's never okay to be silent when someone is being harmed or targeted or something is wrong. On the other hand, I also talk to my children's, my child, my 11-year-old's friends, their parents, right? So um, my son is biracial, and one of his really good friends is a white girl. And so having conversations with her parents about, so what does co-conspiratorship look like for her as they move into their teenage years together? And he switches from being 
a cute little boy to being a quote-unquote aggressive black man? And how is your child going to stand in allyship or move beyond allyship towards co-conspiratorship with my son? And finding out whether or not their child can do that, right? Um, And having conversations with my son around, um, you know, the risks that may accompany him speaking out when he sees something going wrong, right? That he will be treated differently because of the way he looks and the color of his skin. Um, And that's a hard conversation to have. It's heartbreaking, actually. Um, But yeah, I have that conversation all the time with all three kids. And how are they receiving it? Um, To different extents, pretty well. Uh, the older one is definitely more zealous in her approach. Um, the 16 year old is just starting to understand these concepts and play around with them, but still figuring out, you know, what does that mean to me and how am I going to show up? And if I'm targeted because of my race, can I still be a co-conspirator for somebody else who's targeted for some other part of their identity? I'm still grappling with that. And for the little one, you know, <laughs> he just wants to play on his computer and uh, just get on with his life. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I mean, because your, your younger son is... Uh... It's interesting because I mean I'm I'm curious to know this does he sort of understand the stereotypes around young black men because he will be one in, in just a couple mm. of years right and especially looking yeah. at issues like Ahmad Arbery right and and things like that and and how how is your younger son dealing with that? So it's really interesting that you you say that because. There's sometimes when I think, oh my goodness, I talk and talk and talk and he doesn't get it. And sometimes I think, wow, he is getting it. He's just not able to articulate it yet. So for example, um, the other day we were watching a movie and out of nowhere, he's like, yeah, I know that that character and that character and that character, they're all going to, they're all going to be killed. They're all going to die. I said, why do you say that? He said, mommy, everybody always knows that the black people and people of color get killed off in the movies first. Everybody knows that. And it, I had to take a moment, take a breath. I was a little shocked that he said that. And I was like, well, you know, that's because the wrong people are making the movies. Right? You make your own movie and change how that plays out. So there are things that are seeping in for him that he's noticing and that he is um, correctly attributing to race or oppression, um, the way some folks are treated um, and some folks are targeted. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of like the Ahmad Arbery case, I mean, I, I think that is something that was very extremely triggering for a lot of people, especially you know, mm-hmm. for it to happen in the middle of a pandemic. Every community of color is already dealing with their own inequities around COVID, right? And then, and then we have mm-hmm. Ahmad Arbery, 
and then we have we hear of other shootings in, in Kentucky and other places around the country. So what do you what do you think we might be able to do as co-conspirators? Because these shootings we know are not a rarity. In fact, they probably happen way more often than is actually being reported in the media. Absolutely. And it's not Mm-hmm. We hear about it happening to black people, but we also know that it's happening to other people of color and that there's also violence happening. I mean, we haven't really heard as much in the media, but, you know, we know that deportations have not stopped. Right. And putting right. children in in detention centers and have also not stopped. Right. And so I, I sometimes I, I think about, yeah, we can be a co-conspirator. But at what point? do we actually begin to see change? Oh, look, I'm going to tell you honestly, I don't think that I'm going to see the system of oppression that has plagued this nation for hundreds of years to completely end in my lifetime. But I think that we are seeing little bits of change. I mean, even um, on Ahmaud Arbery's birthday, the white men who ran, right? And one ran with a TV screen, right? And then posted about it and wrote about it and spoke about it. I thought, hey, that's a step in the right direction. That's a step in the direction of raising awareness, right? I mean, I don't know what kind of a a risk that person assumed in their personal lives. So I don't know if I would... um, you know, define it as allyship or co-conspiratorship, but it's definitely a step in the right direction towards um, creating real change. And I think that as we get more and more folks to have these conversations, um, and as we get more and more folks to see the benefit that comes to them when they are co-conspirators, then, yeah, eventually the system has to change. It has to buckle under the pressure. I'm, I'm really convinced of that. I think that, you know, it's it's interesting that you used the term co-conspirator in, in our work, right? Because you're, you're uh-huh. an attorney. And uh-huh. we know how attorneys think. We know how they are. Some of the stereotypes <laughs> are true. And you know, I mean, Fiona, you're laughing about it. And so... So what's it like to be a lawyer and to use this term that's often so negatively associated with 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 mm-hmm. people who like the people that we put into prisons, right? Like it's right, like it's like a right. negative term, right? And and I know that, you know, we got one of these questions um in our training about why why the term co-conspirator. And so I'm just curious like if you could share from a, a lawyer's perspective what what that process so, is like so i can't from a lawyer's perspective i can only speak from my perspective because i've always been kind of like the oddball attorney right that you know i kind of feel like um i got in i went to law school for the injustices that i saw everywhere and trying to in my own way rectify them and provide some kind of support to folks but in this work, folks have turned to the term co-conspirator because 
because of its legal association, because it means that in for a penny, in for a pound, right? That you are assuming all of the risk when you act, when you act as a co-conspirator in a crime, even if you don't do, let's say if it's um, shooting someone, even if you don't hold the gun, right? If you drove the person to the scene, if you worked with them to plan the robbery or whatever, that you are going to be charged just like the person who eventually um, pulled the trigger. So in this work, in terms of deconstructing oppression, what we mean is that if you're going to say that you stand by this marginalized and oppressed group, that means you're going to assume the risk. You're going to assume the treatment that that group always has to face. Like, I always have to go through the world as a Black woman, right? Like, there's a lot of oppression that goes along with that. If you're going to be a co-conspirator along with me, you're going to assume some of the risk. You can't do it from your safe perch all the way on the other side of the block, right? You have to stand in solidarity with me and assume some of the risk. And I think that's why the phrase has, you know, taken on um, uh, a certain sense of, of power in this work um, because everybody knows what a co-conspirator is. You know, we all watched enough SVU and, you know, law and order and all that stuff. We know what the phrase means. And so let's apply it to oppression as well. I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for, but that's the answer I have right now. Would you say Barack Obama was a co-conspirator? I think that Barack Obama was a co-conspirator who worked on the inside. And I think that he took on a lot of risk and he was assailed from all sides. Was he perfect? No. But I think that um, it was clear from the very beginning that anything that he did in solidarity of marginalized groups was a risk. And he paid the price for it. I would actually say Michelle Obama was more of a co-conspirator. Why? Because, you know, it's the woman who sometimes, you know, controls the things behind the scenes. Plus, (laughs) you've read her beautiful book. I mean, there were things that she took. She took a lot of risks in her life. A lot. Yes. And she made her daughters take risks too, right? And and I, and I do think yep. that that, and they, I think they're still paying the price for it even now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think you're right on that. I think you're right on that. So what does this mean for co-conspiratorship in the age of COVID, Just Like, what can we do to show up as co-conspirators while we're sheltering in place? I think that if you don't think of yourself as a shit starter, then you're not a (laughs) co-conspirator. I mean, I tend to be the rebel in things, and I, I, I basically challenge status quos and systems. And I think that if you are not in the place where you're sitting in discomfort while you're taking an action, then you Mm. might want to consider pushing yourself just a little bit harder. Because I think it is normal to feel uncomfortable as a Mm co-conspirator. And I think that sometimes Mm -hmm. it's necessary in order to actually start to create social change. 
Mm-hmm. I think you're right. And to sit in your discomfort and also to have folks who are going to hold you accountable. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yes. And so thank you for joining us for this episode today. Please join our conversation. We'd love to hear from you about your thoughts around allyship and co-conspiratorship by spreading the word about our podcast, Woke Isn't Enough, emailing us or checking out our website at healingequityunited.com, messaging us.